show. You're listening to Mastering Money, where we explore the many aspects of good financial decision making. I'm Doretta Thompson, Financial Literacy Leader for Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. We provide no-cost programs and free online resources that help Canadians own their finances and learn the language of money. This season, we're looking at retirement in Canada and discussing ways we can plan and save for a secure retirement, even in the face of economic uncertainty and the obstacles that life can throw at us as we age. Because understanding your options and making thoughtful decisions is the best way to chart your path to a thriving retirement. My guests today are Larry and Kimberly Short of Short Financial with IA Private Wealth, an independent full-service wealth management and financial planning practice located in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador, as well as in Toronto, Ontario. Larry is a CPA, a certified financial planner, certified investment manager, and a popular speaker and longtime volunteer with the CPA Financial Literacy Program. His partner in Short Financial, Kimberly is a portfolio manager, trust and estate practitioner, certified financial planner, and chartered investment manager. Larry and Kimberly help people find solutions to reach and maintain financial independence. Kimberly and Larry are also the co-authors of CPA Canada's upcoming book on estate planning, The Last Act, Closing the Book on Your Finances. The book will launch in November for Financial Literacy Month, and you can pre-order it from the link in the podcast notes. Both Larry and Kimberly have been guests before on Mastering Money, and I'm delighted to have them both back today. Larry, do you want to start and tell us a little bit about your career? I started a long time ago, I guess, uh, just after the dinosaurs died. Um, <laughs> so 32, 33 years ago, I came into this business after completing my accounting designation. And over that time, I've se- I have seen a dramatic change, of course, as one survives in this industry through various recessions, and market crashes and the like, but also seen the evolution of the industry moved towards that full service concept where the one advantage that investment advisors have over every other professional that you tend to deal with is that we get to ask about everything. So we get to ask about your health, your money, in many cases, your relationships, your businesses, uh, your insurance, et cetera. And that's evolved quite nicely to bring us to where we are today. So an awesome career for somebody that is really got that kind of voyeuristic, I want to know something about you. I want to know everything about you. Yes, it's one thing to have this alphabet soup of letters behind our names. Both myself and Kimberly have many designations, but the real knowledge that we're hoping to bring out in this book and through this podcast is the experience that we've had in dealing with so many families over the years. Although we've put in place you know, sound financial plans, we've almost always seen some significant change to that plan happen over time, meaning that it's not something that you can just print off once and file in a briefcase to say it's done and it's checked off. It's something that evolves. And we're hoping that both the book and this podcast will help uh, educate people as to what sort of things they should be looking for and what questions they should be asking. And Kimberly, your pathway has been a little bit different towards helping people in this area. Yes, I started in uh, the field of philanthropy. And uh, so that gave me a great background in what motivates people uh, with their charitable giving. And that was a lovely segue into financial planning and, and money management. And then, of course, on to estate planning. That's been a very 
holistic approach with our clients to make sure that we're meeting their goals during their lifetime and beyond. And what a nice segue. What exactly is estate planning? Would you like to give us a kind of high-level view of what estate planning is? Yeah, I think that's a really technical term. We do our best to avoid it because I think that people, number one, sort of cringe. It's a cringeworthy experience, but also it's something that's probably not well understood. And so I think traditionally we think of, you know, what will happen to our money after we've left the world and and a document called a will. That's certainly part of estate planning. Another part, and I would argue equally or more important, is how we care for ourselves during our lifetime. And so who becomes our substitute decision maker or makers at a time of incapacity? And, you know, that can be anything from our health care to decisions about our money. So Larry, when should Canadians start thinking about estate planning? Is it something that only people approaching retirement should be thinking about? Are there other really key places and times when people should be thinking about these issues? And as Kimberly said, not just estate planning, but living, et cetera, and, and care what those decisions might be for a time that you're no longer making decisions. Both Kimberly um, and I are certified financial planners. And as certified financial planners, we believe that every single Canadian should have a financial plan. Unfortunately, the vast majority of Canadians do not have a financial plan. So regardless of your age, you need to start with that uh, financial plan. As a sub part of that financial plan is your estate plan. That is, it's one thing to say, here's how I plan to live my life. Here's how I'm going to accumulate assets and spend them. And here's how I'm going to buy my house and make sure my children are educated. But part of that is also how do you distribute the assets you currently have, even if they're minor, even if they're not significant, And that is effectively how your your estate plan integrates into your life. The other part that most people don't really understand is that in the absence of you writing your estate plan, the provincial and territorial governments already have one written for you. So the government has already said, we're not going to let you die without some sort of way to distribute your assets, because guess what? We're the government and we want a piece of that in form of tax. So many people are surprised to, to learn that the government has already have a plan for you. So when, when we're talking about getting your estate plan done, it means really modifying the one that the government has already have for you. So that may be a motivator, but sometimes people are shocked to find out that in the absence of you writing your own uh, estate plan, provincial and uh, territorial governments already have one written for you that may extract as much tax from your estate as they possibly can. It's also about your decision maker appointment. So at a time I can't make decisions for myself, who would I like to make those decisions on my behalf? And beyond my lifetime, who becomes my decision maker? And that's a really important appointment at any life stage, whether I'm a single person, just entered my career, one might uh, recognize that I would need a substitute decision maker at a time of my disability, for example. Or later on in life, um, my decision maker and trustee might be in relation to who's going to be a guardian to my children. Or perhaps entering elder years, I want a substitute decision maker regarding my personal care. So all life stages really dictate some need for estate planning. There would be very few people in Canada, Doretta, that would not need some form of estate planning done. 
That's interesting and very important for people to think about. Do you find in your practice that there are kind of like certain life stages that really trigger people to think about these things, marriage, having children, et cetera? Some of them may be obvious, some of them may be not so obvious and that people should really think about. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen that in a number of cases, uh, calls to our office because someone has experienced a particular event in their life. Certainly having a child is a great example of that. And I think in our personal lives, it's what caused Larry and I to take action and say, you know what, Uh, we sort of looked at each other and and said, oh, uh, this is the time now we really have to make our estate plan right after we had our son. You know, other things, getting married getting divorced, getting into elder years. Uh, I know we've certainly had clients if they're experiencing some forgetfulness at whatever stage in life, it causes them to say, hang on a second, what's going to happen if I'm not able to make my own decisions anymore? And then during COVID, that wasn't really a life stage. I mean, you know, that was a global pandemic that caused us all to stop and have a moment or two or a couple of years of introspection and face our own mortality or at least uh, morbidity risk and say, you know, these are the times now we want to sit in and have that discussion with a qualified professional. Right. I think another one that would affect some people too is if they have, say, a child with a disability and they have concerns about that child as an adult and, you know, after their death, et cetera, for the support of that. Is that something you also see, Larry? Yes. Uh, so we used to call these things milestones, which I think if we convert to metric or, uh, I don't know, 1.6 kilometer stones now. But again, it's one thing for people to say, yes, I've now gotten married or I've had a child and I should get my will up. But the fact is that many people are not aware that when they get a divorce, it may not change your will. It it was the case that it didn't change the will. And there's been some some cases recently that affect that decision. But but imagine for a moment that you've gone through a, a divorce and you are not aware that the previous spouse, who you may not have broken up with on a uh, amiable basis with, would still inherit a significant amount of your assets uh, because you have not revised your will. And when I said that to one particular lady, because she had come to see me just after divorce, I said, do you have your will revised? She said, no. And I said, here's, here's the circumstances that may happen. I was between her and the door and I almost got trampled as she got through that door to get out, to get to see her lawyer as well. Uh, we had to be very aware that common law marriage does not necessarily provide the same protections under the provincial and territorial acts as formal marriages do. And as a consequence, when somebody does get married or become uh, joined in a common law basis, sometimes they, they believe that that provincial or territorial law that covers distribution of assets would apply. And so these milestones are really, really important. And then your question about uh, having a disabled child This is particularly important because there are specific provisions that can be put into your will to protect the money that is left to that disabled child. And it involves something called a trust. And we, Kimberly and I have experience in the Caribbean where trusts are used for a lot more than just estate planning. And to a large extent, the use of trust there is done at a highly expert level. Whereas in Canada, we're not seeing as many trusts set up as part of a will 
or set up explicitly as part of a will. And this is something particularly to those individuals who may have a disabled child really should be looking into to make sure that they, they don't have just one of these simple wills, which says whatever uh, spouse one has goes to spouse two. And then when spouse two passes away, it goes to the children that if there is a disabled child, they should make specific provisions in there. Let's just back up for a second. And you've, you've mentioned trusts and that they're not used in Canada the same way you've seen them used elsewhere. What exactly is a trust and how should people be thinking about them? Kimberly? Trust is a complex topic. And I think uh, as much as people cringe at estate planning, I, I think the cringe is much larger when we use the word trust um, because it is a complex instrument in estate planning and in financial planning. It can be different things for different people. Effectively, we think of it like an entity that can hold your wealth on your behalf and distribute to a number of beneficiaries. It can be settled, which means simply brought into existence by an outside party. So in the example that Larry's given, using a trust for a disabled adult child could be an advantageous thing for parents to set up and settle is the word for that disabled child. And they become the beneficiary, meaning that the money flows out of the trust then as an income support for that child during their lifetime and then may not be included as an asset of that child for the calculation of other social government benefits. And that's an example of a trust that can be very powerful in preserving other government supports for disabled people. Trusts are often used otherwise um, set up, you know, perhaps for families that wish to have those income supports in place for multi-generations or um, more than one child in a family that may require different levels of support or where there's privacy that's needed on distribution of the assets uh, by the parents. And uh, so that's another benefit, I guess, of a trust. So I think a lot of us might think sort of generally of trust as being something, you know, just for really wealthy people. And you hear about, you know, trust fund kids and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. But do trusts have a very meaningful thing for more people than that, more people than high wealth individuals? As Kimberly alluded to, the trust discussion can become very complicated and it is specific knowledge that is needed in order to make sure that they're put in place properly, which is why Kimberly sought out and was successful in obtaining the trust and estate planning designation. And that adds a tremendous amount of knowledge to our practice and to our book. The key part with trust was that uh, they have been used by wealthy families over the years and date back you know, to the 16, 15, 1400s. Many individuals inadvertently create trusts when they do things such as um, they have two uh, children, say age uh, two and four, and they then appoint a guardian in their will in the event that something should happen to them. So, so again, go back, going back to milestones, you have a couple of children, you realize was well, something happened to me and my spouse, we need to make sure that the children are taken care of. 
So therefore, we're, we're going to appoint somebody as a guardian uh, who's going to take care of them. So in doing so, you've actually created a trust because unless you explicitly state a second trustee, somebody who's going to take care of the money separate from taking care of raising the child, you have created a trust inadvertently without really thinking about it. And what we're saying is that one should know enough about trusts to ask more questions when you go see your lawyer and determine whether or not that trust uh, should be set up where you have a separate trustee. And then something, even a third thing that is often not used in practice in Canada called a protector. Sometimes we, we hear in the news about, unfortunately, the bad stories about trust, which is that somebody made off with the money, right? And that it was not used as intended by the parents or the person who's called a settler, the people that established the trust. So the intention in the book and, in, and again, this podcast is many people afterwards come back and say, I didn't know I should be asking about this. So how do we educate people to know what are the questions they should be asking? So that's the entire intention of our book coming out. Um, and we delve into it in using uh, plain English and small words, so very, very little jargon in there and pulling a lot of the knowledge that is in Kimberly's head about how these things work and including some experience that we've had over the years where we've seen these used successfully and unsuccessfully to say, here's what you should be watching out for. In answer to your question, Doretta, more than you know, high wealth families are using trust, just sometimes they don't realize that they're using them. It's interesting. One of the things that I've I've heard you both sort of comment on simple versus complex in different ways. I think a lot of people maybe have this idea that their will or, you know, I'm not wealthy. It's not. So therefore, it is not complicated. What is the difference? What, what really is a simple will? And what are the kind of complexities that should really twig for people and thinking, oh, wait, so I'm not a multimillionaire, but still I have issues I need to think about in estate planning. Larry? It's kind of right back to that whole question of what is the average investor doing, right? So we hear about this from time to time. We've never met an average investor. We've never met an average person who is going to put together a will to, to say this is a standard will that you could be that you can use, much like the lawyer approved legal will kit. We have never met that lawyer. We've never met that person. So each person is as unique as their thumbprint. And in many cases, they make the mistake. And the most common mistake that we do see is that people make assumptions. They assume that if something should happen to them, of course, my spouse is going to get all my money. Not going to happen. In most cases, it's uh, if there's any children involved, are any children involved, that changes the formula. Or that because they're, they've been living with somebody for umpteen uh, number of years, of course, they're considered my spouse. So therefore, they will get my um, assets. So in every instance we've, we have encountered, except for maybe one or two. So it's rare that we see a simple will. There's always some sort of complication. So that's kind of piece one. Piece two, though, is that creating a will is not about you. It's about the people that love you and that you love that are, that are surrounding you. And when you pass away, you want to be sure that you give them a gift. Sounds odd, doesn't it? But that gift is time time and lack of complication. So as a consequence, when you write a will, you are giving instructions that are clear and plain as possibly can be that allows your loved ones to mourn, that allows your family to stay together, minimizes as much tax as you possibly can, and gives them the benefit of the time to be able to go through that traumatic loss of missing you. 
I like that. You're really thinking about continuing to kind of love and respect and support your family with what you do with your final planning. So when people are planning their estates or planning to look at their wills and other arrangements, as Kimberly was referring to with planning around alternate decision makers, et cetera, um, what steps should people take to really think about minimizing conflict in their families and making sure that they've covered all their bases? The number one thing that we've seen be very helpful to our client families is sitting and communicating that with their families in advance. So the number one helpful thing that we've seen for our clients as much as it can, you know, create a a difficult conversation is it can be a very helpful process to talk about who mom and dad or aunt and uncle or grandparents want to be their substitute decision makers be that their decision makers during their lifetimes or beyond, when it's a comprehensive discussion with the family to talk about the intention and the thought process around who they want to name to make their personal care or medical decisions or the power of attorney type of decisions around their financial affairs during their lifetime or be the executor of the will after they're gone from the world it helps give a little bit of that flavor to the thought process that went into those decisions. Too often we've seen scenarios where it was a very, not necessarily just informal, but almost as an afterthought, you know, at Sunday dinner, oh, pass the mashed potatoes and Johnny, I want you to be my power of attorney and Susie, can you please be my executor? And so we really encourage families to sit and have that conversation. Let's just take a moment to pull apart those two roles and exactly what they mean, because they are not the same role, although many people may appoint the same person or people to to fulfill both roles. What's the difference between a power of attorney and an executor? The power of attorney decision maker is somebody that acts during the person's lifetime and potentially during the person's incapacity. So we think about somebody that's stepping into my shoes at a time when perhaps I'm medically unable to make decisions for myself. If the time comes and I pass away, that power of attorney appointment is over at the time of my death. Then once I am gone from the world, it's my executor who takes over as my decision maker. I'm going to explore executor in a second, but one thing I do want to just remind our listeners of is we did do a podcast in our last series with Dr. Darren Highland on preparing for the unexpected advanced serious illness planning. And it really looks into the things you should think about in appointing somebody to make those decisions and how to be really sure that they understand what your real wishes are. And there's an interesting free tool that he has to help you go through that process. So we'll provide the link to that in the podcast notes as well to remind our listeners that it's these are serious decisions to make when you're inviting people to take on these roles and your responsibility to make sure that they do understand what's involved in those roles and what your thought process is. Larry? So a couple of points there. One is that all of these discussions about wills, estates, trusts, and, and, and the like, there's a huge taboo in this country of parents talking to their children about how much money they, they have. And that alone, if that could be broken and individuals would, families would actually start talking to potential beneficiaries to say, look, here's, here's where we are. Here's what we're hoping to do. 
eventually we're going to pass on. Here's who the executor is. Here's who my trustee is. Here is who my protector is. And here is how we're thinking of dividing up this money between you and your um, 13 brothers and sisters. That alone, if we could get people to break through that taboo, that's a huge uh, lift in uh, communicating and ensuring that the family stays together afterwards. And, and I really want to emphasize this because unfortunately, um, Kimberly and I have both seen circumstances where well-intentioned distribution of assets was completely misunderstood when it actually happened. And uh, there were rivalries built up within families and people literally stopped going to each other to, for either Christmas or uh, Yom Kippur or whatever. This communication, this taboo that we're, we're trying to break through can be done in something called a family meeting. So in a family meeting, you put together your will and estate, and then you sit with the family and you say, hi, we've invited you here to talk about who's going to get the kitchen table and have that uh, full and frank discussion. A second part to that is something called a letter of wishes. Again, something we've seen practiced outside of Canada a lot, but not necessarily in Canada at all. And it is a final letter to your family that says, hi, here, you're, you're, we're reading the will, and here's, here's what we were thinking. And sometimes in there, you need to remind individuals of sometimes that there is um, convenient forgetting of gifts that were given to various family members along the way. Because again, in, particularly in a large family or even two or three children, which I guess these days would count as a large family, sometimes uh, one child has helped out more than another. And that may be confidential to the other children. And as a consequence, it has to factor in or may factor in in the final distribution of assets. So all of this involves something called communication, which is, again, when you have taboos in existence, is very, very uh, difficult to do. Regarding the taboo, Larry, yes, it certainly is the case that a lot of, you know, intergenerational conversations around money don't happen because people don't necessarily want to put up their bank and portfolio statements on a screen and share them with their children or nieces and nephews and grandchildren. But I think the really important part of the conversation is around the decision-making that will happen around the gifting or what will happen when mom or dad or aunt or uncle are incapacitated or unable to make their own decisions. So it is important to have a tool to guide a discussion around healthcare direction provided to a substitute decision maker to say to Susie, Susie, I'd like you to make my decisions around my continued care at a time of my incapacity. These are my values and these are specific intervention points and methods I would like used. And that may be a very different substitute decision maker than I would have for my finances as an example. I may choose Marie to be my substitute decision maker on my finances. And so those are two very different documents. The first is often referred to as an advanced healthcare directive or a personal directive. And the second is a power of attorney. And so we do see different choices from our client families, depending on the nature of their relationships in their family and with their friends for those different purposes. Can you just quick uh, tell us the name of that doctor again? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's Dr. Darren Highland, and our podcast was on preparing for the unexpected, advanced serious illness planning, and it's called the Plan Well Guide. We'll make sure there's a link to the Plan Well Guide again in the notes to the episode. 
whether it is an individual being appointed as a power of attorney for medical purposes or any other appointment, one has to realize that the appointment can always be rejected. Often we see people say, as Kimberly brought up earlier, they're sitting down with some friends and they say, uh, can you pass the mashed potatoes? Oh, by the way, would you mind being my executor? And they often say yes, because they feel it's a great honor to be appointed executor. We've written an article called Why You Do Not Want to Be an Executor. And it's also included in the book because it is an awful lot of responsibility. If you have not gone through this before, it is a lot of work. And many people who have done it have ended up in circumstances where they've had to make decisions and ended up with members of their family or friends who never talk to them afterwards again. So be very wary if somebody says, will you be my executor? You want to go take a look at this checklist first to see exactly what needs to be done. The flip side of that is that when you do appoint an executor, that executor may look at it, the work that is involved in selling your estate and say, you know what? I don't want to do this. I want hands out of here. So this is why it's really important that selecting your executor, your powers of attorney, et cetera, your trustees, your guardians is so vital. And so how do you interview for this? How do you ask those people those questions? And as an individual who is being asked to take on that responsibility, do you know what you're signing up for? So again, as part of the podcast, part of the links to the various websites, ours included, to be able to find these articles and to the book. This is what we're trying to do to help individuals uh, understand. So Larry, if I'm sitting down to write or update my will and I'm thinking about choosing an executor, what do you think are the top things I need to think about in selecting who I might want to ask to be my executor? The most important factor is competence. Has this person done this before? So if the individual is a friend or a family member, particularly family members, is if there's anything within the family that is already contentious, then when you pass on, it is going to become more contentious. So if there's somebody who feels rejected or someone who feels hard done by, as we Newfoundlanders put it, then appointing someone who they perceive as a rival, for example, can only make situation worse. As well, the sense of trying to treat everybody in the family fairly means then that if you do appoint somebody in the family as being an executor, you have to be sure that your will is very, very explicit and that they're not interpreting or guessing what you meant. So it's one thing to say that the contents of the house will go to such and such a child, but that the contents of the house include the jewelry that may be valued a lot more than the value of the house. Were you considering that you gave someone your cottage, but somebody else was using that cottage a lot more? It's, it's more of not placing the executor, particularly a member of the family, in that conflict of interest where it may be perceived that they could take advantage of the fact that they're executor. Further to the complicated situations or, you know, the multi-sibling scenario when mom and dad are both gone from the world, there are plenty of times where a professional executor is the right choice. And understanding a professional executor's competencies and their fee schedule for acting in that capacity is instrumental to someone's comfort level in appointing a professional to do that. It can be a very good choice for a lot of families for having a professional who has done this role many, many times 
and uh, can get through the process quickly and in a detached way. I think we've probably all heard horror stories of families really being fractured in permanent ways because of what was in mom and dad's will, for example, and not understanding the context or just having it go really, really sideways. I'm sure you've seen that. Yes, Doretta, I think a letter of wishes is a great thing that we've seen a number of our client families use very successfully to help with those feelings after namely mom and dad have passed and and there's a multi-sibling scenario and maybe something in the will that might not have seemed fair or equitable, but in fact was probably intended in a fair hand type of way. And so a letter of wishes is a powerful tool, not a legally binding one, but it simply is something that I, as a mother, might word to my children to say, you know, dear children, uh, the gifts in the will may not equal the same dollar value to each of you. But might I remind you, you know, that I helped Marie establish her business when she first started out. And I helped Susie when she first had children with the costs that were uh, quite substantial. And so I've taken that into account with my final distribution, the will. And the most important thing for me as your mother is to remind you that you're each other's siblings and I've left you in the world together to continue on with the harmonious relationship I raised you to have. Today, we've talked a lot about mom and dad distributing to children, and the world is so much bigger than that family structure. There are, you know, aunts and uncles that distribute to nieces and nephews. There are single people that give to charity and friends and family. There are, you know, families that have multiple marriages and children from multiple marriages. And with all these different types of family structures and estate planning needs, these particular scenarios do present themselves in those different ways. And so there's opportunity for disagreement, but also opportunity for assuaging feelings of those potential beneficiaries from the estate by creating a letter of wishes to express one's intention after we're gone. So one thing, if we could take another little view about wealth distribution, one of the things that we're seeing, particularly with the changes in the residential real estate market is parents gifting their children significant sums of money for house down payments, for example. Does that sort of giving gifts during your lifetime, does that make a difference? Can it minimize conflict? Or you've talked about instances where it can actually create conflict because it hasn't been acknowledged in the will. What do you see in that kind of space where people are giving money while they're still alive? Kimberly? We've seen a good bit of it. And I think that it makes sense to give to a loved one at their time of need and when they can most benefit from it, if in fact you have a surplus yourself. So going back to, you know, if I have a child who is trying to buy their first home and I have a surplus sitting in my savings account that is not something I need for my own uh, retirement income and security, it may well make sense for me to gift to that adult child uh, in that way. With respect to estate planning, it's really important and it really does go back to that whole discussion about letters of wishes. If we have more than one child after we're gone from the world, to remind them of those gifts that were done during my lifetime, right? To say, 
don't forget, Susie, I did help you buy your house. And so I took that into account when I was divvying up my estate and drawing up my will. So yes, it can help. And yes, it can also create issues if we don't uh, remind our family members in one way or another. And I do believe in most cases, the best way to remind them is during our lifetimes via family meetings to, you know, view the family and our finances almost like a business meeting and sit at the kitchen table and say, this is what I've done during my lifetime with my wealth accumulation and gifting to you, my children. And uh, therefore, you know, here's what you're going to find when you go to distribute my state. As well, you can modify your will during your life in order to make provision for such uh, outright gifts. So if you are going to give Susie $100,000, then you can reduce the ultimate distribution from the will by an equal proportion, you know, accordingly. And and you call your lawyer and say, I want a codicil done because I've just granted one of my children uh, X amount of dollars and I want their inheritance to drop by that amount when I uh, pass away. So we would recommend that, particularly if it's a large sum or a significant amount of uh, specific proportion of your estate. The other side to that, though, is the fact that there is a potential, there's a temptation there that individuals give away too much of their estate while they're alive and uh, consequently compromise their own retirement. So at some point, you know, you recognize that you've helped helped your child or children through education, you've helped them through getting a down payment on their home, you've helped them with uh, this particular expense or another, but at some point you have to draw the line and say, no, this is sufficient, this is as, as far as I take it, because you do not want to be endangering your own retirement. And again, just that's part and parcel of that whole financial planning rolled into the estate plan. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly important caveat because we are in fact starting to see that where people are in an attempt to help their children actually jeopardizing their own retirements. Yeah. And one of the ways that you protect yourself from doing that is you turn to the child and say, yes, I can help you out with this amount of money. Which basement apartment are you selecting for me to live in? (laughs) When will you be, will I be moving in with you? Right. So you can make it amusing, but you can also get across a message that there is a limit there, that it can't be mom and dad money bucks writing a check all the time. But if you do write the check, then you have it acknowledged, particularly if there's more than one beneficiary, by using that codicil, a technical term, which means a revision to a will. Larry and Kimberly, you are our partners in life as well as partners at Short Financial. And if you're comfortable talking about it, have you got your estate planning in, in good order or is it a case of the shoemaker's children going shoeless? I love this question. I love that analogy. We certainly did uh, do our estate plan when we had our son. And I mentioned it earlier in this podcast. In fact, we were on a flight and had not done it. And our son was an infant and we hit a point of turbulence and I grabbed Larry's hand and we sort of wide-eyed looked at each other. And I said, that's it. We've got to get the estate plan done. And, you know, like anyone else, what had held us up in that moment was considering his guardianship. It had nothing to do with wealth. It had nothing to do with substitute decision-making around assets It had solely to do with who was going to raise our child and how was that going to go. That was a a difficult decision and yet a clear cut one looking back. And during the process of writing this book on estate planning, we again looked at each other and said, 
well, we now have a son who's about to go off to university and, and that's probably a very different estate plan. Uh, we would certainly tell our clients it is. And so it's time to do it again. And so the answer to your question is yes, Doretta, our estate plan has done well and uh, something that I take great comfort in having done. It wasn't easy to do. And in fact, we had to use our own tools uh, in order to guide ourselves through the process. It was difficult to start and wonderful when finished. I will tell you, Kimberly, that when I was going through the proofs of the book, I did the same thing, (laughs) saying, oh, I need to rethink this and make sure everything's up to date. (laughs) It is interesting in talking with a lot of individuals, when I ask them about, do you have your will done? They they, they come back with a story about, well, I'll I'll get around to doing it. And sometimes you dig a little deeper and they find out, well, you know, I'm, I'm afraid to write my will because uh, I'm not ready to die yet. As if the universe was looking on them to make a decision as to please put your affairs in order so that we can check you out of this version of reality. When in fact, the universe really does not care whether you have something written. And again, I bring you back to the point that there's already a will written for you. It always comes down to the question of, do you want to, to modify that? In our particular case, the discussion about who would be raising our child, that became the, the biggest single element as, as Kimberly was talking about. And then once that we resolved that, then, then everything else just easily fed, fell into place. As we bring our conversation to a close here, can you give us some thoughts on where Canadians could get advice on estate planning? Who should they talk to and what should they think about in reaching out for advice and help? First of all, recommend that you go and talk with your financial planner. And you want to be sure that that financial planner is a truly certified financial planner. So having the proper designations so that they can prepare a financial plan for you. You want to be sure that it's not just a plan that looks at one aspect of your life, that you would like to have it look at all aspects of your life. And presumably that financial planner would have uh, professionals around them that would then be able to assist you in de- uh, putting together your will and estate plan. Larry and Kimberly, thanks so much for joining us today. Estate planning is the final gift you can leave your loved ones, and I'm sure our listeners feel better prepared having listened to our conversation today. You've been listening to Mastering Money from Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. You can click to all of the resources mentioned in this episode in the description for the podcast in your podcast app. Please rate and review us. And if you'd like to get in touch, our email is financialliteracy at cpacanada.ca. This season is made possible by the generous support of our national development sponsor, Canada Life. If you'd like to keep the financial literacy conversation going, we invite you to join us as CPA Canada celebrates Financial Literacy Month with two special conferences. For the first time in two years, we're bringing back our in-person conference, Mastering Money. It offers networking opportunities, interactive presentations, and live Q&As. We are also continuing with our popular virtual conference, Money in the World, exploring how Canada fits into the international financial scene. Follow the links in our resources to register today. Please note, the views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and not necessarily the views of CPA Canada. This is a recorded podcast. The information presented is current as of the date of recording. New and changing government legislation and programs may have come into effect since the recording date. Please seek additional professional advice or information before acting on any podcast information. 
Be well, be kind, and remember, planning is not only the key to success for planning your financial future, it includes a happy and secure retirement. Mm -hmm.